Hello everyone, welcome back to Bartley and a Bible, your hub for biblically faithful expository teaching of the Bible. Here, my aim is to seriously study God's Word and offer you the opportunity, should you take it, to tag along with me on that journey. I'm your host, Bartley Nethery. Thank you for tuning in to episode 3. Today, we're going to dive into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, and the idea of silence in suffering. But before we do that, I do have a request. If you've enjoyed the first couple of episodes and found any value at all in my teaching, there are a couple of simple things that you can do to support the podcast tremendously. First, you can subscribe. It's really easy after all, you just click the button. It helps the algorithms determine who to show the podcast to, and as an added bonus, it notifies you every time I drop a new episode. Second, consider leaving us a five-star review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Those reviews really give the show a major boost in visibility in the podcast world and on the interwebs. And finally, if you know an individual or group that might benefit from this type of Bible study, take a second and share the podcast with them. Hit the share button on your phone and send them a link. It is truly my desire to serve the local church, and I know of no better way in this season of my life to serve her around the country and around the world than through the gifts that God has given me combined with the power of the internet. Thank you so much for your support. Now, with those things out of the way, go ahead and grab your Bible, settle in, and let's study God's Word together. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, the Apostle Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, in these four verses, I want you to take note of three quick and simple things this evening. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is the circumstance that Peter posited. So in verse 18, as we examine this circumstance that Peter utilizes here, I want you to understand, first off, the relationship of servant and master. Peter, in verse 18, utilizes this relationship to present an important principle regarding submission. In order to, to best understand that principle, we need to first examine the relationship between master and servant that's being presented in our text. First, let's take a look at slavery in the Bible as a whole. Now, slavery was prevalent and it was widely accepted in the ancient world, not to excuse it. The economy of Egypt, Greece, and Rome were based on slave labor. In the first century, one out of every three persons that lived in Italy, and as much as one out of every five everywhere else, was a slave. Huge gangs of slaves toiled in the fields and mines and on building projects around the area. Additionally, many were domestic and civil servants, 
Some were temple slaves and others were craftsmen. Some were forced to become gladiators. Some were highly intelligent and held responsible positions such as doctors. Legally, a slave had no rights, but with the exception of the gangs in the fields, most slaves were treated humanely and oftentimes were better off than many of the free persons. Domestic slaves were even considered part of the family and some of those were greatly loved by their masters. Canaan, Aram, Assyria, Babylonia, and even Persia had fewer slaves because it actually proved less expensive to hire free persons than to have slaves. Still, the institution of slavery in the ancient world was unquestioned. The Stoics insisted that slaves were humans and should be treated accordingly. Uh, Israel, uh, in their law, it protected slaves in various ways. Christian preachers called upon masters to be kind to their slaves, but really it was only the Essenes who opposed slavery in the ancient world. And they were a small minority. So now let's consider this specific word, now that we've got that out of the way, servant that Peter uses here in chapter 2. This is the Greek term oikites, and the term specifically means household servant. It describes a person who works as a servant within a particular household. Oikites only occurs twice in the New Testament in its common usage for slave. The other occurrence you can find in Acts chapter 10 verse 7 when the angel of the Lord instructs Cornelius to send for Peter in Joppa. Now, Cornelius sends his oikites to summon Peter to come to his house. What's significant about this specific word, though, is the nature of this type of servitude. Whether the master was good toward the servant or not, there was a more constant contact in this relationship than with other types of servants. This is, of course, due to the fact that this type of servant worked inside the master's home. Mostly, this servant would be doing domestic tasks, things like cooking, cleaning, washing feet, all of those type of things. This specific role is important in understanding the depth of Peter's calling to servants here, as well as the overall principle that we're going to examine in just a moment. Before we get to that overarching principle found within the circumstance that Peter posits here in these verses, let us first look beyond the relationship of servant and master, and for just a second, let's examine the response to good and evil that Peter directs here uh, in verse 18. Submission, according to verse 18, is the only acceptable response of the servant toward his or her master. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. This command comes directly off the back of Peter's previous but very similar command. In verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2, Peter had commanded all believers to be in submission to every ordinance of man and to every government institution. And this command, of course, was contingent on the fact that those institutions did not require 
its citizens to commit sinful acts or practices, obviously. So submission is an important theme in chapter 2, and it will be if you read over into chapter 3 as well. What you're going to see throughout all of Peter's epistle is his great concern is to encourage scattered believers that have been kicked out of their home and scattered across Asia Minor His purpose is to encourage those believers in the midst of their suffering, their persecution, and their displacement. Within those veins, Peter's concern, like most of the New Testament writers, was the relationship of individuals to God and a focus on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their Creator. So, Peter's concentration in addressing these suffering believers was not on ending slavery or any physical, earthly, temporary solution for that matter. Peter, from verse 1 throughout this whole letter, is focused on that incorruptible inheritance that is only found in eternity through Christ. You can see that back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. So, Peter instructs these believers on a godly response to mistreatment, no matter what the master or servant relationship looks like. Back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, submission with Christ-like behavior is the Christian strategy in the face of mistreatment. Peter makes this truth clear in the context of our neighbors in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Uh, in the context of the governing authorities in verses 13 to 17, then here in our passage in the master-servant relationship in verses 18 to 25, and then if you read on over into chapter 3, he puts that into the context of the husband and wife relationship as well in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. And with each of these relationships, Peter doesn't offer social solutions to the perceived problems. Peter only addresses different aspects and principles of this one strategy that Christians are to employ in each relationship. The important thing for us to note regarding the relationship of master and servant before we move on to the overarching principle is Christ-like submission as the response of the servant, whether that response is merited by the master's treatment or not. So, we went a long way around to obtain this necessary context. Now, let's get into the meat and potatoes of what Peter is teaching here in these last few verses of chapter 2. This relationship between the master and the servant is, number one, the circumstance that Peter posited. And moving on from the circumstance that Peter posits, let's look at number two, which is the principle that Peter presents. There are a couple of questions that we really need to ask here in order to kind of draw out this principle that Peter is presenting to the surface so that we can examine it and apply it to our lives and our families and our individual communities. And the first of those questions is really obvious. The first question we have to ask is what is the principle? So Peter lays out the principle in a very straightforward fashion in verse 19. He writes, For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. The word thankworthy 
uh, is somewhat unusual to us today, but it's a simple term. It means grace or to find favor. In this particular instance, it's quite clear that Peter's intention is to show us that the principle he's fixing to proclaim will indeed please God or find favor with God. Now, that's pretty significant for the believer who, in the power of the Holy Spirit within them, wants to please God. For that person, Peter says, if you want to find favor with God, do this. Then he goes on and he says, For conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. There were a couple of preachers that I listened to in preparation for this podcast who made the same point regarding this verse. Uh, Consider the society that we live in today. Most people aren't concerned about things like sacrifice or prudence, or delayed gratification, or humility, uh, or things of that nature. The thought of someone else or someone else's needs being more important than myself or my own needs is absolutely insane to the world that we live in today. Because we live in a world that is filled with social media cultivated narcissism and self-worship, And this type of world, when you take it and you mix it with the values of our cultures and our constitutions, what it's done is it has created a people that is hyper-obsessed with our individual rights. Now, forget about sacrifice, forget about helping your fellow man or any of the other qualities that used to be highly valued. I have rights. That's the cry of the day. We've got women's rights. We've got animal rights. We've got employee rights, landlord rights, and even rights for the so-called genders that don't even exist. We've got rights for everything today. In the last several years, our news cycles have been filled with coverage of people supposedly fighting for their rights. It seems like there's a new victim and there's a new oppressor every five minutes. It's exhausting trying to keep up with whose rights are being violated the worst. Then we come to verse 19 and Peter has a word of release. He says, if you want to find favor with God, sacrifice your rights and suffer unjustly for the sake of the kingdom. Now, before you write me off, let me explain what I mean. Think about Daniel. Do you remember Daniel living in that Babylonian captivity? Daniel found favor with the king. Most of you remember the story. The other servants of the king didn't appreciate or even like Daniel. They were, in fact, jealous. So they devised a plan and they convinced the king to sign a decree making it illegal for anyone in the kingdom to pray to anything besides him. They did this because they knew that Daniel would open his window toward Israel and pray. This would provide that tattletale moment that my siblings were always looking for when we were kids. And sure enough, despite the decree from the king, Daniel opened his window like always and he began to pray. Daniel did so because it was more important for him to please God rather than to hang on the physical freedom he had by pleasing the king. He sacrificed his freedom for the sake of the kingdom. Now, this is the principle that Peter presents to us here, utilizing the specific relationship between the servant and the master. 
So you might be sitting there listening to this and you know what it's like to have a froward boss or manager. The word froward here simply means unreasonable or crooked. Essentially, if you have an evil, malicious boss, it's true that you have rights as an employee. It's true that you have the opportunity sometimes to show him who's boss. Maybe you can accomplish that by going above their head. Or maybe you can accomplish that by lowering your output as an employee. You know, you take up that old motto that people used to say, never sweat on company time and never use the bathroom on your own time. And if you do that, man, you can really stick it to the man. But here's Peter's message. Peter's message to servants and to you and I today is sacrifice your own rights and privileges for the sake of the kingdom. Submit to your boss for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes when you have a good boss or a good master, that was supremely easy to do. But sometimes when you have an unreasonable boss, that command becomes exponentially harder to accomplish. But verse 19 tells us that the response of submission is the response that finds favor with God. Now, that's true in the context of our neighbors and our community, the context of government authorities, and in the context of the workplace. So, Peter uses the relationship between master and servant to present a timeless principle to you and I today. The principle is this, enduring suffering graciously, whether justly or unjustly, for the sake of God's kingdom, finds favor with God. But there's still yet another question that begs to be answered here. It's like my five-year-old whenever I tell him something exciting. I mean, for instance, there was one time I told him uh, that he had one more night, one more sleep before he was going to the zoo with his grandman. On that ride home, he asked me 7,684 questions at least about the zoo. He wanted to know what he had to wear. He wanted to know what it was like to ride on the school bus. So many questions. And so this passage today is, is sort of like that. There are questions that arise. And that final question that we need to ask, now that we know what the principle is, we need to ask, why is this principle important? Or more specifically, what's the purpose of this principle? In verse 20, Peter asks us two questions. So let's separate those out and address them one at a time. Here's the first in verse 20. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? Now let me bring you up to speed for a little bit more of a modern English version of that. No offense to King James. Peter asks, what does the kingdom benefit when you get the just punishment for your actions and you take it silently without complaint. So I was thinking about this question and I was reminded of one of the few times I got in serious principal's office level trouble during my time in school. It happened sometime around the fifth or sixth grade. I can't quite remember now exactly when. There used to be a program when I was in school that encouraged students to read books. And as proof of reading these books, you would have to take a small quiz on the computer to ensure that you had actually read the book. 
I pretty much always loved to read, so this program was great for me. The problem was, though, a certain number of books were required for every student, whether you loved to read or not. And that was a problem for a lot of my friends. And that's where the trouble starts to creep in for me. My best friend at the time was... Eh, he was short a book or two. And he asked me if I would sign into his account and take the test for one of the books so he wouldn't get in trouble with his mom and dad. As a kid myself, I was pretty sympathetic to not wanting to get in trouble over grades at home, so I agreed to help him. So when we went to our computer class that day, I signed in and I went to work. That was all fine and dandy until the teacher walked by and noticed that I was doing somebody else's work. She sent me straight to the assistant principal's office. It was my first trip there and I was absolutely terrified. But, you know, due to my behavior record, I wasn't punished like super severely. Although just having to tell my parents that I had to go to the principal's office was enough to make me want to pass away right there on the spot. But it was pretty simple. I went down there. The principal told me what I did was wrong. He assigned me a writing assignment. I had to write some phrase, something like I'll never attempt to complete work for another student or something like that. I had to write it a couple of hundred times and turn it back into him. I prepared my speech for my parents. I even finished the writing assignment before I went home that day. And when I got home, I told my parents what I had done, just like I had rehearsed. I assured them that I had already completed my punishment. Well, I had technically completed the punishment that the school provided for me. But according to my parents, my punishment wasn't over yet. You can use your imagination for the rest of that story and the punishment that took place after that. But here's the point. I didn't find any favor with my parents that day by silently enduring my punishment. The reason for that is because I actually committed a violation and I received the just punishment that I deserved for that violation. That's not something that's going to find you favor with anybody, especially if you're a fifth grader trying to find favor with your parents. Peter acknowledges that fact with, his, with this first question. The obvious and rhetorical answer is that there is no glory when someone receives their just punishment for a wrong they committed. Then Peter asked the second question, But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. In this phrase, Peter restates the principle that he gave us in verse 19. And that principle, as we noted, was enduring suffering graciously, whether justly or unjustly, for the sake of God's kingdom finds favor with God. So when the believer patiently endures mistreatment with the purpose of furthering the kingdom, this finds acceptance and favor with God. This principle is one that so-called churches, in air quotes, across the country would really do well to remember today. So many professing Christians in our world forget that our inheritance and our victory is in the life to come, not in this life. The focus of so many professing Christians has been sneakily shifted away from eternity by Satan, and really they have no idea that this shift has taken place. Those Christians believe they are focused on eternity 
when in actuality they're attempting to bring godly order into a godless society in a godless world. For example, I've read some heartbreaking articles of so-called churches bragging openly about the diversity boxes they've been able to check off. One, I, I think it was a Baptist church, bragged about the fact that they have transgender, LGBTQ, straight, single, married, divorced, and cohabiting people serving in their church. Not just attending, serving. They've lost sight of the mission, and they've lost sight of the gospel. I read another article earlier this year about a pastor who claimed that Jesus transgendered himself when washing the disciples' feet in this twisted effort to blend with the godless culture. This pastor completely lost sight of the Jesus of the gospel. I'll give you one more and we'll move on. My wife and I were talking about a video that went around some time ago. Uh, many of you may have seen it or uh, you might not have. But there was this so-called church worship band that had changed the words of the contemporary Christian song, Good, Good Father, whether you like the song or not. They changed the words from Good, Good Father to Good, Good Mother amongst a host of other heresies and falsehoods that are completely contrary to Scripture. So here's my point in all of that. As we look at the principle that Peter posits here, it's hard not to see how far away from the truth so much of Christianity today has gotten. Our calling is not to fight for our constitutional rights, though don't get me wrong, I'm happy that we have them. Our calling is not to fight for the social issues of the day. Our calling is not to fix this world. I've often gotten irritated with church members in places that I've served over the years because they would treat the students that were in our student ministry as if they should be these docile, well-behaved, perfect angels. I often told my volunteers that they had to remember that we can't expect lost people to act like saved people because it's contrary to their nature. Now, am I saying that cultural, social, and constitutional issues aren't important? No, of course I'm not saying that. I'm thankful to God for many things that we're privileged to have and that we experience due to our constitution and the culture that we live in. What I'm saying, however, is that the church should not be captivated and distracted by these things because these things are not our mission. They're not our purpose. Our purpose is to be salt and light. Our purpose is to make disciples of all nations. Our purpose is eternal, not temporary. Much of so-called Christianity has been distracted by so many things that don't make a snowball's difference in eternity. It's my prayer that we would not be distracted by these temporary things. Now, Remember our discussion that we had on slavery just a few minutes ago? Almost no one in the ancient world was opposed to slavery. Christians in the early church, they never condemned slavery. In fact, the early Christians were taught to be good masters and to be submissive servants. 
This was their teaching, whether masters or servants deserved that treatment or not. Early Christians transformed the world, not by fighting for social causes and looking more like the culture, but by being submissive servants to everyone around them. Peter talks about submission in in several different contexts, but the principle is always the same. When Christians graciously endure suffering and mistreatment, whether it's justly or unjustly, for the sake of God's kingdom, it finds favor with God. You know why that is? It's because it takes the attention off of you and it points it directly at Christ. That's how Christianity transformed the Roman Empire. And the Bible says they turned the world upside down in the first century. Submission is powerful because it runs contrary to every principle that the world holds dear and valuable. Submission is powerful because Jesus is the one who patented the strategy. But we'll dive into that biblical truth at another time. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. I pray that you would go out and that you would develop a passion for making disciples. Take your mind off of things that are temporary. Take your mind off of things that don't matter in eternity and focus your mind on things that are eternal. Focus your mind on the mission and the purpose that we've been given. Have a great day. God bless.